kind of felt overwhelmed there by that whole, that song. I don't know why. It's good to see you tonight. We have a couple of announcements I'd like to share with you. I know Pastor shared some announcements with you, and we do have some exciting things coming up. Probably the closest, the soonest thing that is coming that is just right upon us is uh, our our picnic. I love all church picnics. I love the I love the fun, the seeing people, you know, and sharing times together and you know, you see the different dishes that people bring and I mean there's so many things about a picnic and then the fun we can have, you know, whether that's throwing horseshoes or watching kids play and water fights and whatever else happens and and um Certainly, you know, volleyball, kickball, all those things. I- interesting, we ha- my, my niece married a guy from Sweden. And I'm sure you're wondering, how did that happen? Well, 20% of people today meet on the Internet. Did you know that? I've already done two weddings for people who met that way. One of them was this niece of mine. They actually met playing a computer game. So they were visiting with us this weekend. They're, he's in college in Chicago, and they live in Chicago. And my kids, ta- he didn't know what kickball was because, you know, they don't grow up playing baseball in Sweden, so they got to teach him how to do it. But he, he did have an advantage since he grew up playing soccer. He's definitely a good kicker. But it was fun watching him do that, and I was just thinking, I wonder how many things, I wonder if they've ever played horseshoes. Probably not. You know, he's probably, there's probably a lot of those things that he's never experienced before. Sunday school classes that are coming up, I want to let you know about this, that uh, Tim, uh, Tim Davis already started his new class, but Phil work is taking him out of town for the next three weeks in a row. So he's using that time. He's putting uh, together a brand new class on end times prophecy, revelation, and how that fits into today's events. So if you've ever wondered about that or would like to kick around some ideas in that class, he'll be starting that class on July 1st. And then picnic, of course, you know, there's going to be people cooking hamburgers and hot dogs. And then if you get the flyer and the bulletin, you'll see that there's certain things that we're just trying to balance out the food with your last name. And I'm just looking forward to I'm just excited about those things. So it's good to see you tonight. I want to thank you for coming out on a Wednesday night. We're going to be finishing up our series on Crown Point Corinthians, and I'm going to miss it a little bit because it's been fun reading this. In college, one of the classes, I don't know if you ever did this when you're in school, took summer school, or sometimes they would do classes in January, like between the fall and spring semester, and you shove an entire semester class into three weeks. And I did that once with um, C.S. Lewis. They called it a C.S. Lewis seminar, so we were reading three to 400 pages a day of C.S. Lewis, and by the time you do that for three or four weeks, it's amazing. You start to think like him. Yeah, I had, and there's still words I misspell to this day because I spell them like a, someone who's British instead of an American, so because of that. And I feel like that a little bit with this book that we've just been covering ourselves with Paul and the way he thinks and the way he's been fathering and directing this church. So as we look into this last chapter, this final chapter, Paul does some catching up. And, and I think that part of what he did is he saved a couple of these things because they weren't that salacious or exciting, but he just wants to finish up and answer their last remaining questions. So if you read with me here, we'll start reading here in chapter 16, verse 1. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, no doubt they ask about this. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So final Q&A, final questions and answers. 
And I so wish, and I'm sure, you know, it's impossible to know this maybe till glory, but I so wish we could see their actual questions. That would give us even more fullness into seeing what Paul was answering them. But as part of that, we know that there was a collection for the Jewish church. We don't know all the details of this. We don't know if they were already under more persecution, if they just had reached out to more poor people and needed more money. We don't really know the details. We do know, we do know looking in the book of Acts that they were dealing with a lot of widows and a lot of orphans and a lot of poverty. So it could have been something like that. We don't know. Something I do want to point out is there's a concept here between tithes and offerings. You notice that Paul didn't mention 10% because he wasn't talking about tithing. He wasn't talking about the regular support to the church. He was talking about over and above. And I can see already some of you, your face is getting tight and your jaws clenching because I'm almost talking about money and giving in church. Do you ever wonder why church talks about that? It's not just because we need money. It's because the Bible talks about it a lot. And you've probably heard this old saying that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Have you heard that? Let me twist that phrase a little bit. Unfortunately, the way to a man's heart is through his wallet. That's why they, people get so offended. It's because their heart somehow is between their, heart, their wallet and their mind or something. It's as if you start to talk about money, and now, oh, now we can't talk anymore. Because people's money decisions, I mean, look at what brings conflict in marriages. Money's one of the top things. Money becomes a big issue. And there's no question about it. If your heart is right and your relationship with God is right, then money becomes less of an issue. And when Paul is talking to them, he's talking to them about reaching out to a, a sister church in Jerusalem. And then something else I just wanted to point out is you notice in there he said, do the same thing that I told the Galatian church to do. This wasn't unique to this one church. Giving is something that goes across the board in all churches. It's supposed to be something that is common. All the churches were given these instructions. Not only that, just another, this is a little point of information. Notice that he said on the first day of the week. Why would he say that? Well, what happened was their tradition in the Jewish, in the Jewish church, of course, we know that they celebrate a Sabbath. It started on a Friday evening and went to Saturday evening. And there are some people today who teach that we should still be respecting the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, and worship on Saturday. But something we know from church history, and then a couple references in Scripture here, here's, here's two more. They mentioned meeting on the first day of the week. The reason is because you see in Revelation, they called it the Lord's Day. Anybody that hasn't gone to Bible college know why they call it the Lord's Day? First day of the week? Sunday, I hear you whispering and you're not sure enough to say it out loud, because Jesus rose on that day. So they celebrated that day. They figured, you know what, we're not bound to these old rules anymore. The idea is that we're going to celebrate. What better day to celebrate than the day Christ arose? And that was characteristic in the early church from the very beginning on, that they celebrated on Sunday, the first day of the week. Moving on here in chapter 16, verse 5. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Doesn't this remind you of a letter you might get from an aunt or something? You know, definitely a family member has a familial quality to it because that's Paul's relationship with them. And as you have been here for these last weeks, you remember that there were times where he was pretty hard on them. 
He was harsh on them. He was sarcastic with them. He chided them. He scolded them. But he's ending the letter here, and he's just saying, I want to come, but I don't want to make a quick visit. I'm going to spend some time with you. He says, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. And just to give you a frame of reference, I know we're Pentecostal. Pentecost was a Jewish feast, Pente 50, 50 days after Passover. Just so happened that 50 days after Passover is when the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 happened. It was a Jewish celebration time. So again, back to the final Q&A, he mentions Macedonia. One of the cities in Macedonia, anybody know what Macedonia, another modern name for it is? Would be like Greece or the, the Grecian peninsula there. So if you look at this map right here, is that too small for everybody's eyes? Okay. Well, you can see in the middle here, I'm going to walk up on stage so you can see what we're talking about. Paul is writing from Ephesus right there in the middle. That's where he's writing, and he's writing to Corinth, and he's saying that he's going to, He's going to go through Macedonia, and when he does, he wants to stay a while in Corinth. And you might be thinking, why would he stay the whole winter? Well, part of the reason is because of the way the storms and go through there. wouldn't be safe to take a ship back and forth during those times, and the land passages would take a long, long time. So if when he does visit, he's thinking he might winter there and spend the time there. So he mentions Ephesus. That's where he's writing the book from. And then he says that a great door for effective work has opened. You ever wonder where that phrase come from? Well, maybe God will open a door for you. Paul used it. It's a familiar phrase that God has supplied an opportunity for effective work. Think about this for a minute. Paul is writing to the Corinthians with whom he'd had an effective work, and he's in Ephesus, and he's saying God has opened a door for effective work. Does anybody remember any of the problems Paul had in Ephesus? Anybody remember what happened there? Anybody remember a temple that was there? Yeah. Yes. Yes, Artemis, the silversmiths. His preaching was disturbing the, the financial, the bank account. Again, the way to a man's heart's through his wallet. And there was huge things going on, but there was also huge revival because notice he says that many oppose him. We as Christians should never get the idea that good times are just the blessing of God. Most of the time, these things come together. Blessing of God and struggles. Paul didn't look at those as something to be run from. Instead, he's saying, a great door for effective work. Oh, and many oppose me here. Never even said anything about it. Now, Pastor has given you some of his theories about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Remember, he prayed for that to be removed. One of the things that some people think that thorn in the flesh may have been was there was a group of people, a group of either they were current Jews or recent Jews who did not feel like he was preaching the gospel correctly, and they would follow him along and try to cause trouble everywhere he went. So sometimes some people think that the thorn in his flesh was actually a person or a group of people who kept, they kept uh, fighting him in his ministry. And he says, many people, or many, there are many who oppose me. <laughs> I wonder, is there anybody here who's feeling opposition? Maybe you're feeling, you are? Maybe you're feeling called to a specific ministry or you've worked in a ministry before and, and not, I mean, maybe you've been pulled out of it or stepped out of it or pushed out of it because people have opposed you. And yet Paul started this phrase with saying, a great door for effective ministry. All I'm saying is <laughs> that for Paul, this, this was opportunity. And you've probably heard this, that, that opportunity, that Chinese symbol for opportunity and conflict are the same thing. You ever heard that before? Interesting, isn't it? 
That's how God looks at things. So we talked about the thorns. Let's look on to what he says. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Again, now he talks about Timothy. Just to give you a little background on Timothy, Timothy was converted on Paul's second ministry journey, missionary journey while he was in Lystra. We know that he was Paul's protege. Paul groomed him in the faith, calls him his son in the faith. He was the recipient of two letters. Eunice, I saw her just walk in, and she is Timothy's mother. Did, did you know Eunice had a biblical name? I do too, but it's De- Dionysimus, which is like the god of wine. I'm not so proud of that, but it's mentioned in scripture, but not, not in the way I wanted. But Eunice... Eunice is his mother, Lois was his grandmother, and scripture specifically says that these are pillars of the faith. Those were his parents, and they had, or his mother. Now we know that his father was Greek, but his mother was, was Jewish. And we know from, from the book of Acts and other places that, that Timothy was with Paul at least when he was in Galatia, the book of Galatians written to that church, Philippi, the book of Philippians written to that church, and Corinth, where this letter's going to. And at the time, that Paul is writing from Ephesus, later Timothy pastors the church in Ephesus. And we do know from history that he pastored that church for a minimum of 15 years, and that's where he was martyred for the faith, in Ephesus. You don't hear about that much, do we? We talk about all the great things some of them did, but we forget that so many of these fathers of the faith died horrendous deaths. In his case, he was beaten and stoned to death by pagans who didn't want to hear what he was preaching anymore. What? That's right. Jesus did tell him there would be persecution. Now about our brother Apollos. Remember we started talking about Apollos? Remember how Apollos was such a point of controversy? Remember in the earlier part of the book, he was having to say, some of you are of Apollos, some of you are of Paul, some of you are of Peter. Apollos was a powerful character. Now about our brother Apollos. He takes all the book to come back to Apollos. And he says, I strongly urged him to go with you, go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Apollos, who is this guy? Was he requested to return? We don't know. Was he a reluctant celebrity? I hope so. I hope what was happening with Apollos, what I mean is he didn't like the celebrity that they were giving him there in Ephesus. He didn't want to be a superstar. He wanted to be a gift to the church like Paul described the the pastors and leaders of the church should be he wanted to be a servant to the church not elevated to some some level that was inappropriate i hope that's why he was reluctant to go be on your guard stand firm in the faith be courageous be strong do everything in love if you were to look for one section two verses in this book to encapsulate the whole message of the book here it is look look at what he's saying be on guard Remember, be on guard about the selfishness. He co- corrected them about their selfishness over and over, the pettiness of putting one gift above of another, one leader above another, all of these things, the foolish attachments to different leaders. He says, stand firm in the faith, the gospel, which we talked about last week. The gospel, the truth that, that there is good news, that we have sinned, we've separated ourselves from God. He wanted a relationship with us, but we separated ourselves. And our, no matter what we do, our good works can't 
claw back into relationship with him. But instead, Christ paid the price, only him, and he paid the whole price. And he says that the gospel was the thing that he preached to them first and that they accepted first. Stand firm in that faith. Then he says, be courageous and strong against false doctrine. False doctrine was continually attacking that church, no different than what we experience. No different than the Da Vinci Code. I mean, that comes up every few years. It seems like every 15 years, somebody writes a book or discovers another gospel and says, oh, look, all of a sudden, Thomas wrote a gospel, or Jesus had a wife, or Mary Magdalene and Jesus had a love child. You hear this kind of thing over and over and over, and it seems like each generation, all of a sudden, they think, oh, this is all new, and you know, it ends up on Time Magazine and the New York Times, and people thinking, oh, this can't be true. Christianity's got all these problems. Well, you know what? The same things were happening to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago. Everybody had a new idea. And what Paul is trying to remind them, be courageous and strong. Stand up against this false doctrine. From attacks within the church, people who will come in and, and try to divide the church, attacks from outside, persecution. And whatever you do, do everything in love. Almost everything. Most things. The people who are nice to us. Except for war? <laughs> okay. Pride. How does that affect us? Obviously, he talked about their pride. They had terrible pride, but if they had real love, as we read in, in Corinthians 13, then all that pride would be washed away, and they wouldn't put themselves above others. In their leadership, if you really loved people, you wouldn't fight over what leader was more important or less important. The judging that he mentioned. He talked about judge the sin in the church first. That's how love translates through all of that. He talked about the fact that you shouldn't be having lawsuits in each other. If someone's done wrong to you, either just take it because you're the bigger person, the more mature Christian, but whatever you do, work it out in the church. You can do this. He talked about marriages, need to have love as the basis of it all. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Everything should be done in love. If love was the measure by which we operated everything in our lives, then literally, love God, love others. That encapsulates the entire gospel. St. Augustine is famous for saying, love God, and then do whatever you want. And some people act like, well, I can do whatever I want. Well, yeah, but if, if you love God really, then everything you want will be good things. If you really love your wife, then everything you do is going to be good and benefit her. If you really love your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, then everything you do, everything you say, will put them first and elevate their needs and desires above your own. Anybody else grow up watching Mayberry RFD? <laughs> do you remember how Barney Fife and his girlfriend interacted? Oh, whatever you want, honey. No, no, whatever you want. Oh, no matter what you want. And then you come back you know, an hour later and they're still doing that. But what if we really treated like each other like that? What if we fell over each other to give the other person their way? Then there would never be anybody wronged. Instead, we would be honoring each other all the time in love. That would be the very definition of how we operated with each other. The very idea of Paul, Paul said over and over, I do whatever it takes for people to know Christ and him crucified. What drove him to that? It's his love for people. He loved them that much that that defined everything he did. Gifts of the Spirit. Remember all that? Some people were elevating one gift above another, but if you did everything in love, you would never elevate one thing above another. You would see that they all had an equal place. You would prefer one another's gifts. You wouldn't have to fight over who got to speak in tongues first or all of that nonsense that we saw in chapter 12, 13, and 14. 
Moving on here. He says, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. In these closing remarks, he's reminding them to honor those who serve. Some scholars think that these may have been actual brothers, but for sure they were brothers in Christ from this church, and they may have been the ones that brought the letter and may have also let Paul know about some of the stuff that was going on at the church that he corrected. And it may have been such that, that these guys might have been worried, oh, mo, oh no, when we take this letter back, they're going to say, oh, thanks a lot, you ratted us out to Paul. Could have been. But we do know this for sure, what Paul is saying, is that there are those who serve among you, and you need to honor them as servants. You know, we have some amazing servants in this church. And there are times where we probably hesitate to recognize them because we can't recognize everybody or we're worried we might leave somebody out. But the truth is that these people deserve honor. I mean, I think about the ones who've, who volunteered or served forever and ever. I was thinking about this the other day, and I, I ran into uh, Bev Taylor. And I just said, Bev, how long have you worked with children here? She said, well, I've been in the nursery. I don't remember even what she said now. It was 30-some years. 30 years. That means she's taking care of babies and their parents and then their parents. <laughs> she's done that all of these years faithfully. There are people like that in every church who serve. And what Paul is reminding us is we have to honor those who serve. You have to honor them and give them the place of honor that they deserve. Steph- to Stephanus, you may remember that name. Do you remember when Paul was talking about how I didn't baptize all of you. You shouldn't be saying you're loyal to me over Apollos or over Peter. Remember when he was saying that earlier in the book in chapter one? Do you remember he did say, though, that he did baptize one family? It was his family. This this person, whoever it was, he says he was one of the first converts in that whole area. And Paul did baptize him. Going back to the scripture here, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. I want to point out just a few things here. He first starts off and says, all the churches in Asia greet you. Now, I put up an old phrase right here, this Catholic church. I just wanted to tell you, first of all, this doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. This means the church universal. There there is a quality of Paul's writings that remind us that there's supposed to be this relationship with churches that transcends our individual maybe doctrinal differences or our individual ethnic differences or the way we worship. Brady Smith and I were having lunch yesterday at a restaurant, and evidently I was talking loud. I can't imagine that happening, but... The person, as we were leaving, said, hey, I was hearing you talking. And so then he started asking questions about our church. And he wanted to know, well, what kind of church are you? And do you talk tongues in church? I mean, he wanted to know all these things. And it was funny because as I'm talking to him, I wanted to answer every question. But in the back of my mind, I'm trying to think, well, what's he really asking? And, 
you know, how can I answer his question without, you know, I'm just trying to, it's like a landmine sometimes with people, the way we are with other people's churches. And, and the funniest thing about it is in the end, it turns out this guy had grown up in the Assemblies of God and he loves the idea and he, he might come here, which is great. But the thing is, my point is that we should operate more, that we are, we are brothers and sisters in Christ that transcend all of these things. In my neighborhood, we've kind of gotten around and we know who everybody is and what churches they go to. One of the sad things, when we first moved into the neighborhood, everybody was so friendly and they were so excited to find out that we were pastors until they found out we were Pentecostal. And then some of them, I'm not going to tell you what church, but they thought they just haven't been as friendly since then. And it, it grieves me. Not because I need them to be my friend, although that's probably part of it, but... The real thing that bothers me is we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be combining, you know, linking arms to reach out to the rest of our neighbors and see them come to Christ, whether it's our church or their church or the, their next-door neighbor's church, which is a different church, and the next one. You know what I'm saying? There are people, you know, there's going to be Baptists in heaven, right? And a few Catholics. And <laughs> what? That's right. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a few. No, I'm kidding. Let's talk for a minute about Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila and Priscilla. Let's just, I just want to give you some background information on them. It's just fascinating. They were Jewish. Paul met them in Corinth. We know that because in Acts chapter 18, it says there he met, talking about Paul, met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And we know that they were tent makers and that they hosted Paul in their home. Again, from chapter 18 in the book of Acts, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And then they arrived at Ephesus. We know that while in Ephesus, they could have been there even at the time Paul was writing this book, because remember, he met him in Corinth, and then he's writing the book from Ephesus, and they traveled with him there, that he, they corrected and helped Apollos, remember that guy? They helped Apollos with some of his doctrine. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. Does that sound like somebody that the Corinthians would respect? Remember, they were all about the speaking ability and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They invited him to their home. Remember what they had in their home? from a little earlier, a church, the church, a church met in their home, okay, and they explained to him the way of God more adequately, something interesting, they're mentioned six times in the New Testament, and half of those times, you may have noticed it already, that they keep changing around Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, and I know to us, we don't think much about that, and maybe you're reading a modern translation that translates every time the Bible says brothers into brothers and sisters to make it more gender inclusive. I don't have an issue with that per se, but this is an interesting thing that happens in the New Testament where six times this couple is mentioned and half the times her name is mentioned first. The only reason that's significant is because a lot of the recipients of this, these letters wouldn't have been, um, let's, how would we word that, um, well, let me say it the other way around. They, wouldn't, they would have been more chauvinist in their culture than that because to name the woman first would have, would have given preeminence to her to some level. 
So we don't know exactly what that means, but we do know it, it was significant to some degree. And then they were in Rome with Paul. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. He, this is the book of Romans to Rome. They were, in Paul, they were in Rome before Paul got there. My co-workers in Christ, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. The only reason I mention that is because so many people try to act as if Christianity has some level of chauvinism or misogyny built into it, when in fact what you see over and over, especially in the New Testament, is an elevation of women to a level that they didn't enjoy anywhere else in any culture in the world at the time. And yet you see that in the Scripture. You see that in the Scripture in Galatians, for instance, 3.28, where it says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That was a radical thing to say. And the Bible is where you hear that. I, Paul, let me go back to verses 21 to 24. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. So here's his final, final closing remarks. His own hand. Now, most of you probably are aware that that the vast majority of people for the vast majority of human history had no ability to read and write. In fact, there are still people groups without a written language. Now, in Paul's day, we know that he was a very educated person, that he'd be trained as a rabbi. We know that he was fluent in, in more than one language. He probably could have written these letters himself. I'm sure he was able. But the tradition of this time was to use a secretary or someone who was a professional writer. And that would happen often. So Paul would dictate the letter, as most people would do, and then then somebody else would write it for him. But Paul was in the habit of ending a lot of his letters personally. For probably the reasons that, that make sense is it makes it more personal. And it adds an air of authenticity. And in some of your Bibles... I don't remember which version, if it's the New Living or some, some of them actually change the font of this, these few verses just to illustrate the fact that the original recipients of this letter, they would have seen a different handwriting because it would have been Paul's personal handwriting. And at one point, I forget which letter it is even in the New Testament, he says, I'm writing this in my own hand. You can see how large I'm writing because my eyes are failing me. And so that just gives this air of personal, personal person to it and Let's talk about this curse thing. Yes. I'm cursed and I love the Lord. <laughs> you are not cursed. Yes, I uh, let's talk about this curse. When Paul says, if people do not love the Lord, they're cursed. What is he saying? Let's think about this for a minute. What Paul is saying, he's not trying to say that, you know, curse you who don't love the Lord. He's not saying that, you know, everybody who's outside the, the fold of faith is, a, is, is a, you know, an infidel. That is not the spirit of this. What he's saying is that they've already cursed themselves by rejecting the Lord. That's what he's trying to say there. Then he says this phrase, and this is interesting because he uses an Aramaic phrase. Anybody know what that language is? Aramaic is the common language of Jesus' day that most of the Jews would have spoken. So, for instance, when Pastor mentioned it um, in his sermon Sunday, when he talked about Jesus being on the cross, and he, he mentioned it being called Golgotha, that's Aramaic. It's not a Greek word. Most of the New Testament is written in Greek, but occasionally they would throw in some Aramaic. And when they do that, it shows us a few things. One thing it does is it shows us, again, is authenticity. Because if they're trying to be slick and fool us and make all this stuff up, they wouldn't have done that. They just did what came natural. And so when Paul uses this phrase, Maranatha, which means 
Lord, come quickly, or Jesus is coming, or the Lord is coming, or I expect his return. What that was was a very common ancient Christian saying that they would say to each other in encouragement. What's interesting about it is he's writing this to non-Jews. He's writing this to Roman citizens of Greek origin. What's cool about that is they, they have adopted a, re, a religion that started in Jerusalem, started in Israel, and he's spreading this, is, this Jewish phrase, this Golgotha, or, pardon me, Maranatha to them. Now, is anybody old enough to remember the 70s when they used to say that, like the Jesus movement would say that to each other? Anybody remember that? <laughs> you see that? I even, this is corny, and I'm, I think Nicole hid it from me forever, but I, have a, I actually have an old belt buckle that said Maranatha on it. And, it's so funny because there was a time, you know, and this happens from time to time in Christian culture where we try to resurrect these things that were great back then. Like I remember back years ago, you know, we would talk about like one of the early terms for Christians was called the way. Christians were, it was called the way. And so there was a time where people were trying to call themselves that or they would call churches that or whatever. But this is one of those words and those phrases. Now, of course, we don't always, if you, in most of your modern translations, it's not going to say Maranatha. It'll say Lord Jesus, come quickly. But basically what it is, is this encouragement saying, he's coming back. He's coming again. And Paul is ending his letter with that. And then Paul has his classic benediction in there. The grace of the Lord be with you. And in almost all of his letters, he has some version of that. Grace be upon you. Grace to you. And then he ends by saying, basically, all my love, Paul. Think about this for a minute. All my love. This is the father who corrected them, the same guy. And he's ending by saying, all my love. I've been thinking about this a lot. As Paul wrote this to them, he was motivated by love. Paul was motivated by love. He, he was convinced that Christ was coming soon and that Christ was the answer to everything that they needed. He was convinced of that. Now, Paul had a bit of an advantage, you might say, because his conversion happened by Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus. Do you remember that story? And the light showed, and he, was, he fell to the ground, and he calls up, and, 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 he's, and uh, well, the voice says, you know, why do you persecute me? And Paul says, Lord, and he's converted. But for us, are you convinced to that degree? Think about it for a minute. Paul was so convinced that he endured hardship after hardship. We know that he was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was left for dead. He was attacked. He went without food. We know all these things. He was jailed over and over and over and then ultimately killed for his faith. But he believed it and it drove him. The conviction of the truth of that drove him to tell people over and over and over. How much easier would it have been for Paul when all those people opposed him just to say, you know what? I'm done with that. I don't, I don't need all this. I don't have to work this hard for it. He could have done that, but he didn't because he was convinced. Are you convinced tonight, like Paul? Let me ask you this. Jesus' heart is clear. I want to take just a couple minutes and look at Jesus' heart for the lost because this is what drove Paul. In fact, some of the things we're going to read here, Paul wrote this. He wrote to Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 
Let me go back to this for a minute. You may be sitting here and you're thinking, or maybe you're not even thinking this out loud, but, but you, are, you are comfortable and satisfied knowing that you have attained salvation and a relationship with God that has changed your life. But is your heart like Paul's and like Christ's that breaks for the people that are around you that don't know that forgiveness? Christ literally came to save sinners. That's why we say, are you saved? You know, it's kind of that Christianese, that Christian talk that some people don't understand. But what does that mean to be saved? What you're trying to say to people when you say that is the fact that something has changed in your life and you're saved from death into life. There's a difference now in you that, that is not in them. And does that make you uncomfortable? Pastor used a phrase on Sunday that I loved. He said, does it just make you uncomfortable to know that, that friends of yours, neighbor, family, have not experienced what you've experienced? Let's look at the book of John. For God so loved the world, this is John or Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. How does your heart respond to those who are perishing? Maybe we don't think of it very often this way, and I, I don't want to be unnecessarily dramatic, but imagine, if you would, if, if every two, three people you walked by tattooed right on their head was hell. I know that sounds dramatic, doesn't it? We don't like to talk about that, but Jesus did. What do you think perish means? He juxtaposes there. He puts perish up against eternal life. That's, that's the two options that Jesus is saying here. If you, don't, if you don't believe in him, your choices are perish or eternal life. And again, I'm not trying to be unnecessarily dramatic. I'm just saying this is what drove Paul. Not just to write this letter, but to go on and on and on and to tell people over and over and over about the truth of the gospel. And why? Because it's freedom. It's freedom and it's life. I mentioned to you my neighbor Danny, who, who I'm, I'm praying for every day, and I'm working on. Pastor gave us some, some cards Sunday to write some people's names that we're praying for and that we're anticipating and hoping that they will come to faith in Christ. And as I was talking to him, you know, a couple days ago when he was working on my breaks with me, and he said, but I think, you know, all religions pretty much sound the same. And, you know, when people say those kind of things, you have to be careful in how you respond because you don't want to sound like a know-it-all. You don't want to sound like you're so self-assured and you know what, I mean, that's just, nobody likes that. That's rude. I said, well, yeah, they do. They do sound like that. And there's a lot of truth in every religion. I mean, it wouldn't be much of a religion if it didn't have truth in it. But then as I was talking to him, I said, but there's a message in there, you know, in Christianity that's different than what all the other religions have to say. And it's interesting, he kind of looked at me and he goes, really, what is that? How easy is it from there? And I said, well, the difference is this. In Christianity, it says, we, we believe that God actually created us for a relationship with him, that he wants that with us. That's the good news. People don't think that's true. They don't know that. You can't assume that everybody knows that. Now, there is a point where people know that and reject it, but a lot of people haven't even heard it before. And then the point, then I said, but the problem is that when we do things wrong, it separates us from him. And there's no way that we can make up that separation and make up that difference. So he decided to pay the price for us and to, to, to bridge the gap for us. And then he said, so that's the Jesus part. 
So, yes. And then we got to, I think, what might be his issue. And he said, so then I have to do whatever the Bible says. Can you continue to pray with me for him? Because as we stand out there and shoot baskets and we have opportunity to talk and share life with him, I really believe that God is going to save his soul. And I'm so excited for that and what it will do for him and his family. And I believe the same thing for whoever it is that you wrote on that card, for whoever it is that God is putting on your heart that you have a unique opportunity to talk to. <laughs> you know what? This is, I sure hope he never hears this tape, but you know what else? He, he, he's in this layoff period from Ford. Otherwise, I'd probably never be able to talk to him because he always worked nights, so I never saw him. I mean, they lived there for like three years, and we never really saw him. But because he's laid off, he's there every day. So we'll just, you know, the kids will go over and knock on the door, and hey, can the kids play? And there you go. We're talking. Does that drive you? Does it motivate you? Because lately I've been thinking, man, it's been three years, and I never talked to him, and what if I don't get a chance? And what if God knows what will happen? What if they move or worse? Things can happen. That needs to motivate us because there's a real end there for him and for us. The next verse we don't often talk about. Everybody knows John 3.16. We can all probably quote it. But this is also the heart of the gospel. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. See, people... Some people in the world have this idea that God is just this big killjoy or some angry person up there with a hammer just waiting to crush them when they make a mistake. And they miss the whole point. That is not it. This is a loving God who wants a personal, individual relationship with you. Individual. He wants to know you. That separates Christianity from so many faiths. Islam, for instance. There's no personal God in Islam. Their idea is that if that their God, uh, Allah, he would never lower himself to have a relationship with a mere human. They never know if they will be saved until the day of judgment. That's why the whole idea behind jihad is so appealing, because that guarantees salvation. Otherwise, there's no guarantee, and all their works, good or bad, will be weighed, and they won't know how it ends till judgment day. There's no personal relationship. Do you know how attractive a personal relationship with a God can be? to someone who's lived in fear their whole life of this God, that's a powerful thing. And yet this is what Jesus himself told Nicodemus. And then moving on to verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So where is your heart tonight? Pastor talked about this Sunday and he gave us, you know, he told you about how we feel like God's will for this church, my church, your church, is that it grows. But not for the sake of growth. It's not about numbers. It's about souls. It's about the fact that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who don't know. You know, I've always thought it was so silly for churches to compete over people. I mean, think about it for a minute. You can walk out in any direction here, we're up on this hill, and look, and you're going to see thousands upon thousands of homes. And how many people live in each home? And what happens under that roof day in, day out? What kind of cares? What kind of desires? What kind of arguments? What kind of, what's happening there? Do they know Christ? 
I think about that every time I fly. I don't know if you guys do this, or I'm looking out. I love to look out the window and just look down, and then it just always overwhelms me when we fly over a residential area, and you just see homes as far as the eye can see. And I wonder how many of them are going to heaven, and how many people have lived and died in those homes and are not there today. Does that pull on your heart today? This is not a guilt sermon. I'm not trying to end it that way. I'm saying you should be compelled and motivated by love to tell these people they need to hear. And you may be the one person who could reach them. Oh, why is that picture on there? I honestly don't know why my face is on there. I have no idea how that happened. Because this is our concept for this is my church. And maybe that fits, I guess, because it is mine too. But we want you to own this. This is not about a vision that pastor has alone or the staff has. It's not. This is the Lord's vision for this church. It's your church, your vision, it's your call. Your, it's what God wants for you. It's, you should be saying, Let's, can we say it? It's my church. Can we say that together? Say, meaning, say it's my church. You have to say it a little louder because let's try it again. It's let's try it again because that sounded like everybody, but it's you, you realize, right? It's not pastor's church or Dennis's church or their church or the deacon's church or the Sunday school workers. It's my church. This is your church. This is your church. This is the Lord's church, and he's building it, and he has a heart for the lost. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute?